Terry Virgo is a founder of New Frontiers and would be known to many uh, along those lines. New Frontiers are a family of churches that are basically together on a mission and uh, uh, something like 250, I think, in the United Kingdom, 800 churches worldwide. And so Terry will be known in that way. To others, Terry Virgo will be known as a writer of uh, quite a number of books. And uh, you have his latest books uh, given to you, I believe, as you walked in this morning. I want to thank the uh, publishers for doing that for us, actually. Uh, I was, by the way, very thrilled to find that uh, the book had sold out on Amazon and is selling out all over the place. And... Uh, and uh, a thought occurred to me. I don't know if I tweeted this, but I intended to, to say, I think coming to 300 conferences is the only place you can probably get this book right now in the United Kingdom. <laughs> a thought occurred to me. Founder of New Frontiers, uh, he's, a, you know, he's pastored church for many years. He's pastored a church from this small to that large. So name what size you want to name. He has an idea of what you're going through as a leader because he's done it, didn't just go through seminary and then begin to speak. For someone like me, though, uh, Terry is a, is a father in the Lord. Um, I, it's a funny thing because when I f the first sermon I heard by him, I thought, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I, I, I did because it challenged and threatened to shred my theology. It went on to succeed to shred my theology. But um, God really used him, amongst others, to really speak into my life. And the message of grace, I, I, I got it. I always thought it, but I got it but listening to him. And I thank the Lord for that. And so to me, Terry is not just founder of New Frontiers and all those things. He's a, he's a father to me. In fact, the last time he was at Jubilee, I said, I'm the only black kid Terry has. Because <laughs> he's got five kids of his own. I'm the sixth one. I'm, the black. I'm not the black sheep of the family, but I'm the... <laughs> well, I went on to find out he has hundreds of them in Africa, which I was not happy about, but I am happy about. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, a joy to have him here. Please welcome Terry Virgo. Thank you, Toppy, and thank you very much for uh, your welcome. It's good to be uh, here. I count it a privilege to speak to leaders. I know how busy your lives are as leaders, and I want to thank you for taking out time uh, on a Saturday uh, with Sunday coming up fast, and I'm sure a busy week behind you uh, to give this morning. It's great that uh, we're together, and uh, I count it a privilege to address you. Uh, the theme of the Spirit-Filled Church is something that's been on my heart for many years, and uh, we're looking into themes related to what's now in the form of a book. I wrote a book in, in the mid-80s called Restoration in the Church, which caused uh, quite a stir. The word restoration was very much an in-word at the time. Uh, years have slipped by, we've learned more, God has taught us things, and uh, now one can write uh, from this perspective. I think it's wholly in keeping with what I wrote those many years ago. I pray it will be a blessing to you and to many, and I'm grateful that it's uh, beginning to go uh, well. Uh, so praise the Lord for that. And I'm going to look with you, please, in the book of Acts. Uh, if you have your Bible, I'm going to be reading in a few separate sections. I hope you'll follow the thread between them. We're starting in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse 11. Uh, it's my custom, I'm not sure how unhelpful it might be, uh, to read from the NASB. Uh, I like its accuracy and uh, uh, that's why I use it. I know it's a bit awkward if you're using a different translation, but uh, here and there you'll find the words pretty similar. And I'm sure we'll be able to follow. Okay, if you're going to follow me, we're first in Acts chapter 6 verses 11 to 14. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, 
And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Then you get Stephen's very long sermon, and we're coming in right towards the end uh, in verse 46. Acts seven forty-six. Stephen is saying, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Well, what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? This is the question we'll be coming to as I go on. What kind of house will you build for me? Then going on in Acts 11, Acts 11, verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. But here were some of them. But there were some of them, sorry, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news of them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus and took for Saul, looked for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had the means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And one more, right at the end of chapter 12, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they'd fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then when they fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them and sent them away. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its faithful account of the birth of your church and of this very crucial church at Antioch. We thank you, Father, for the appetite in our hearts to seek you and your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we are delivered from the dominion of darkness, the foolishness into which we were born, that uh, futile way of life we inherited from our forefathers. We thank you that we love you and we want you and we love your word. And Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. And Father, we ask you, please, 
May your Holy Spirit teach us and shape us. May we be poured into the mould of your word. May it have impact on our lives to your great glory and praise. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're looking at Stephen and the ramifications of his clarity, his vision, his martyrdom. Those associated with him, we're told, were scattered and some of them arrived at Antioch. Friends of this man who seemed to be so clear about issues. In some ways, he seems to have had incredible revelation, maybe more even than some of the apostles who we're told were still going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, though they did it very mightily, uh, raising up a, uh, a cripple and doing extraordinary things. Uh, yet Stephen seemed to be looking beyond uh, the temple as was uh, the Mosaic law as was, the way God had been worshipped hitherto, he was looking further. I believe he grasped something phenomenal, that God did not dwell in houses. He didn't dwell in houses made with human hands. He was going to do something far more radical. And in his great sermon, uh, sometimes called his apology in Acts 7, as he preached it out, out of it came this question, what kind of house? Will you build for me? And I think we can sit here this morning as uh, children of our Heavenly Father and hear him ask that question right into our hearts. What kind of house will you build for me? And it's interesting that we see that this church at Antioch came from those who were associated with Stephen. And we get a glimpse, really, just in the opening verses of Acts 13, which is where we'll be spending our time, on the kind of house that was built. Here in Antioch, which was a hugely important city, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and uh, it could be that this was a very, very important place. Because first, uh, in the first place, it's a major, major church that is formed away from Jerusalem with its very strong Jewish tradition. Here, we're coming into the Gentile world, and a great church is going to be formed, which will have huge influence. It will be Paul's sending base. It will be the one that exemplified the sort of thing that he was teaching and preaching. And so, yeah, this is a key and great church. So, what are its characteristics as we uh, look at this church? First of all, it says, in the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets. Okay, that's the first thing we come across. It is the age of the Spirit. It's important for us to know that. It's, uh, it is possible to be a Christian, uh, particularly in this country, and think, well, the prophets were an Old Testament phenomenon. Uh, the Old Testament has Elijah, Samuel, uh, Moses, great prophets. Uh, that's, uh, the prophets are, yeah, they're from the Old Testament. We're now in the New Testament. Uh, now it's the church age. Uh, so you have deacons and committees and uh, boards. And, no, no, no. In this church, there were prophets. That was one of the marks because actually this is not the age of the prophetic being closed down. This is the age of the prophetic being opened up. This is what Paul calls the dispensation of the Spirit. And it's possible for us to consider our Bibles and think, yeah, the prophetic, the time when God spoke uh, directly, uh, when God's presence was manifest, well, it's back there. You have to read about Samuel. You have to read about Elijah. You have to, that's, that's where God is speaking. But as you look at that, you'll find one of those great prophets, uh, Joel, said that in the last days, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. There's going to come a far wider manifestation of the presence of the Spirit. Not a shutdown, but an open up. Not that the old covenant was full of glory and the new covenant is just us and a book and that's it. No, the new covenant is the age of the Spirit. It's where God breaks out. It says of Philip, the evangelist, he had four daughters who prophesied. What was breakfast like in their home, I wonder? I mean, just there's four daughters. I mean, it's just that's, it's, and Paul writes and says, when you pray or prophesy, that's the language. When you pray or prophesy, what do you mean pray or prophesy? Well, prophesying is that much part of this age we're in. We're in this age of things opening. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to hear the prophet, uh, when Samuel was the predominant man, for instance, he would do his national tour, it says. He would travel among the cities. And if you were lucky, you might have been in town when the one prophet came through. 
And you might have had a chance to hear him. Or you might have been like Saul, who said, let's go down to Shiloh. Let's see the prophet. We have to make a long, long journey. There's a prophet in the land. There's one guy who hears God. There's one guy who speaks for God in the land. Let's go to him. The New Testament is an age where, no, no, no. The Spirit is poured out. It's widespread. We are in the age of fulfillment. The Old Testament is an age of restriction. Paul says that the glory of the new covenant far outshines the glory of the former. And uh, I saw last night, I saw a moon up in the sky, and you see, wow, that's just colossal. That just commands incredible respect. Boy, look at that. Then this morning, as Toppy looks out of his window and sees the sun, you might say, is that the moon up there? Is, can you see it? Oh, yeah, that's fading little... Yeah, that fading, irrelevant thing against this overwhelming sunshine. So that's the sort of language Paul says, that the, the former, it just pales into insignificance compared with a new thing that God is doing. And so when we look at church, say, right, what sort of church, what sort of house will you build? Well, this house, the first thing it says about it, in Antioch there were prophets, that was one of its characteristics. That's how you described it. That's the sort of thing it was. It was a place where the Spirit was present, where the Spirit was manifest. And it was manifest through speech, through God being heard, His presence being among them. Now that to me is hugely important. It's not something that we should uh, uh, set aside. And it's important for us to see that the presence of the Spirit was so crucial. You remember when Paul came to Ephesus, and uh, he found, it says, some disciples. And at first you think, what do you mean, some disciples? It says, uh, uh, have you received the Spirit? And they say, well, no, what are you talking about? And it becomes clear, as Paul interviews these 12 guys, that actually they're disciples of John the Baptist. Because when he asks them, uh, they know about John's baptism, but they don't know anything about Jesus. And so the passage says, so Paul told them about Jesus. And then... He baptized them. In other words, he led them to Christ, actually. They were uh, enjoying the revival that came under John the Baptist, that get ready message. But they hadn't come fully in yet. But notice his first question. Here he stumbles on some people who are called disciples. Perhaps he thought they were Christians. His question is, have you received the Spirit? Has the Spirit arrived yet in Ephesus? When you think of Ephesus, what a city. Today, we often think, oh, Christendom is fading. It's really tough for us. You can't take anything for granted anymore. People don't know the Bible and so on. Hey, that's how it was for Paul at the beginning. They didn't know anything. And he turned up at this city with Diana of the Ephesians as the great God and the temple of the Ephesians with its pillars, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. It had a huge economy. It was a center of economy and training and worship. I mean, it was already entrenched in its own culture. And Paul turns up and says, has the Holy Spirit come here yet? No. So he lays hands on them. The Spirit falls on them. Holy Spirit has turned up now. The Holy Spirit has arrived in Ephesus, if I can put it that way. He's come amongst the people. He's broken out. Acts 19, where that happened, is one of the most exciting chapters in the whole of the New Testament, I think. We often think of Acts 2, maybe 3, 4, as, uh, yeah, when the Spirit fell, the early church, how dynamic Acts 2 is. Well, here's Acts 19, where actually you see Paul at the kind of pinnacle of his apostolic ministry. Uh, he then, later on, he's, in, he's put in chains and so on. But Acts 19, it's like Paul at his zenith turns up at a city with its own religion, its incredible strength of character, not searching for anything else. And he says, has the Holy Spirit turned up yet? And then he lays hands on them. And the Spirit fell upon 12 people. By the end of Acts 19, there is a riot. And the riot isn't because he planted a house church. The riot is because he changed the economy in the city. Because the silversmiths made their money from selling statues of Diana of the Ephesians. And they can't sell them anymore. Because nobody wants them anymore. Why? Well, because they're turning to Jesus. They're turning to Jesus. As it says about, in Acts 17 about the church at Thessalonica, he proclaims another king. I mean, it was not just a private religion. 
Today, we tend to think, now, religion, politics, you keep that to yourself, okay. No, 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 this is a very public thing, hugely public. So much so, there's a riot. And also, it says, he taught every day at the hall of uh, uh, Tyrannus. And then it says, as he was there, the gospel was heard throughout the whole region. And probably those churches in Laodicea and Thyatira and so on were planted. Probably Paul's there for two or three years in Ephesus. Young men like Epaphras, Paphroditus, they're trained up by him. They go out, they plant churches. So Ephesus becomes another hub when the Holy Spirit came. And it says Paul did great signs and wonders. And there was a great breakthrough against supernatural wickedness. Demons are cast out of people and things happen. Things happen because God has turned up in these cities. Beloved, we need spirit-filled churches. Not just churches of explanation, they will come to that, but churches of demonstration. Paul says to the Thessalonians, our gospel came to you not in word only. Yes, in word, but not word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit. And you know what kind of men we were among you? There was an impact. There was a gospel impact. Spirit-filled churches bring gospel impact. And this phenomenal outbreak led to, yeah, a great, great riot. It's interesting that Paul, even writing to the Galatians, when he's arguing about the law-grace issue, as you know, the whole of Galatians is about that, really. Paul has been into Galatia. He's preached the gospel. Many have been saved. Many have been filled with the Spirit. Signs and wonders have happened in Galatia. He's moved on. As he moves out, the Galatians are uh, impacted by the Judaizers who move in behind him and say, oh wow, you people have received our Messiah. You pagans have received our Messiah. Well, this is great. Our old prophet said you would receive our Messiah. This is good news. But actually, we've known him for centuries, and um, uh, we know uh, what you really need. Uh, we'll, you know, we've known this God. You must get circumcised, and you've got to keep the Sabbath, and don't forget the feast days, and don't eat that sort of thing. And so they come in with all this Old Testament stuff. And Paul writes his most furious letter in Galatians. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Strong word he uses. Who's bewitched you? Brought a little law. Bewitched. Yeah. Then he says this lesson. He said, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I find it fascinating that's his question. He doesn't say, how were you saved? That would tend to be my question, probably yours. How were you saved? Paul says, this is how you receive the Spirit. For Paul, the coming of the Spirit, the breakout of the Spirit is the important thing. Of course, we have to be saved by the blood of Jesus. But it's the coming of the Spirit. That's the promise of God. Down through the Old Testament, the Spirit will be poured out. So even in arguing an issue about law and grace, the way he argues it is, how did you receive the Spirit? That's what's uppermost in his mind. The Spirit-filled church. Even in Thessalonians, he says something about uh, the work of God. He says, he who gives his spirit to you. It's just incidentally thrown in. The God who gives his spirit to you. So for Paul then, the church is a place where the Holy Spirit is present, where prophetic is heard. Now I know for myself, uh, raised, uh, I was saved in my late teens, from a non-Christian background, my parents were not Christian. Uh, happily, they both got saved very late on, and uh, God was kind and merciful. Uh, but I had no gospel upbringing, and then I went along to the nearby Baptist church, uh, where it was the Bible was very thoroughly uh, preached. There's some fine, fine uh, preaching there. It was uh, good to hear the Word of God. But then I got so thirsty to be filled with the Spirit. I it was the, in the early 60s, and uh, what was called the charismatic movement was starting. And uh, people like Michael Harper got filled with the Spirit in 1962, and so did I. And uh, the charismatic movement was just beginning to start. And uh, it was interesting, at the time, people were saying, well, obviously a lot of debate, uh, a lot of hostility, to be perfectly honest, uh, but also uh, interpreting what is happening 
And some were saying, well, no, no, listen, the, 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 if you have received something, it's private. It's for you. Don't uh, make vibes. Uh, you've got a problem? You've got, received, right, you've got your, you have your personal prayer language, was a phrase that was invented. Your personal prayer language. Some said it was swearing in Chinese, but it's your uh, personal uh, prayer language. A lot of debate, as I say. And, uh, uh, and it was like, just, whatever you do, don't mess with the church. So it's your personal gift. That's how you interpret it. And uh, if you must, you can go out to your charismatic meeting from time to time. Uh, but don't mess with the church. So the church stays as it is. You've got a personal experience, and you can share that with other people if you must. I felt, no, I'm sure that's not what God is doing. I felt God is saying, no, no, this is new wine, and it requires a new wineskin. God wants something dramatically fresh, different. It says in Psalm 107 that the, the Israelites searched for water in a desert place. It says they stumbled on a river. And then it says this, around the river they built the city. And then they planted crops. Then they had a harvest. There's a kind of, there's a process. River, city, planting, harvest. You build the city around the river. You don't build the city in the desert and go out to the river occasionally and say, oh, oh, Holy Spirit, oh, lovely. I'm going to go back. No, build the city like many secular cities, London, Paris, are built around rivers. They're built around the life. The church should be built around the presence of the Lord, the manifest presence of the Lord. And so... Even in those early days, there became a, a difference between those who were saying, well, this is just personal renewal. And some of us were feeling, no, no, this is new wineskin. This is recovering New Testament Christianity. It's not a little private deal. God wants a different kind of house. What kind of house are you going to build for me? That was the big question that came to me as I finished going to Bible college and I'm going out having been supposedly trained and so on. What kind of house are you going to build? I'm so grateful that I was, um, while I was in London at Bible College, I attended a new spirit-filled church. It was fresh and new. Uh, as it happens, it was not a long-standing Pentecostal church. It was a gathering of people freshly filled with the Spirit, though there were some uh, older people who had got years of experience, but it was a great, great place. And it was uh, very informal in as much as it didn't have its own church building. It met in uh, the boardroom of an accountancy firm near Charing Cross. And uh, I went there for three years, nearly every Sunday. And uh, it grew while I was there. They had to push down walls and stuff inside this place. And it was often very, very crowded. And, uh, and sometimes it was hard to uh, just find a seat. Sometimes people had to sit on the floor. But the meeting used to start at 9.30 and finish when it finished usually about one, and then we'd share food. I mean, it was very informal. It was awesomely inspiring. The preaching was also very biblically based. And I remember once uh, the communion was coming around, and I received the plate from someone with the bread on it, and there's a guy sitting here on the floor. And uh, um, so I step over him to give the bread to the next person. And he's sitting there. And he's looking up at me, and he doesn't know I'm there. His eyes are closed. And as I'm across him, he begins to prophesy. And it was a strange thing. It was my birthday. And uh, that morning, I'd had a birthday card from somebody. And uh, in the card, they'd written one of my favorite verses. You've all got those, haven't you? The verse underlined. Yeah, that's my verse. I always love that verse. And uh, I was thinking, Lord, thank you, that verse in that card. And then I also had a tear-off calendar. So you, you tear off the page as a text. And there's this text. And it's another one of those verses. It's just, these two verses mean a lot to me. Uh, they've just, just been very personal to me. Very sense of God's loving hand upon me through those verses. I thought, Lord Jesus, thank you. That, that should happen. It's, it's amazing. I'm so grateful. And I've gone to church. And I'm in church. And I'm stepping over this guy. And as I step over him, he begins to prophesy. Just in the meeting. And he prophesies to my son. And in the prophecy, he quotes both verses. 
And I'm standing there thinking, oh, God, I am in your presence. I'm in your house. I'm in a place where you are. And that, from that day, I thought, whatever we do when I leave college, I must build a church where God is present. And my dear Baptist pastor, who I love very, very much indeed, is a wonderful preacher and a dear pastor. He said to me, you're going to become a Baptist pastor? And I said, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. I, ju I just need to see a new, something new where the presence of the Lord can come. And I'd love to do what's happening here in Charing Cross, where no one lived there. They all came in from all over the place. I'd love to do that in a location, in a town. I'd love to bring the presence of God. Meetings where God is present. In the church of Antioch, there were prophets. I was so thrilled to hear that last Sunday. I wasn't there. I was away from my home church at the end of the uh, evening meeting. Uh, when they'd finished the preach, and uh, a few guys just came up and stood and gave words of knowledge at the end of the meeting. And one lady who'd been very, very struck in the morning meeting but couldn't handle it and left before the preach ended, came back to the evening meeting, which is a repeat, but could only get there for the last 10 minutes. And she got there, and as she got, she, this word of knowledge came, came exactly for her, exactly. And she said, oh, God, this is breathtaking. God in his house. God in his house. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets. Also, it says that Agabus the prophet, in the passage I read to you, he turned up, he said, this is going to happen, and so on. There was a presence of God in the church broadly. There's going to be a famine, and so on. And they didn't say, oh, he's a good speaker, we'll book him for next year. They said, hey, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We've got to start taking up an offering and, and helping out the poor uh, in Jerusalem. So the prophetic was a big part of the church. It was a spirit-filled church. Then it says there were prophets. Then it says there were teachers. Okay, just the, to move on to, through the verse. We're taking a long time on that. But uh, there were teachers. It's important for us. We don't say, well, that's it then. We've got the Holy Spirit. We don't bother with the Bible. We don't need the and just the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. There were prophets and there were teachers. Jesus came teaching. Nicodemus said to him, you're a teacher sent from God. It says he went around teaching. Seeing the crowd, he was moved with compassion and taught them many things. I was in a church in Spain and I had some time to kill waiting for somebody. I just drifted in there, and it's very dark. And, uh, and a little lady came in, very bent up and dressed black and very old, obviously poor. And she came and bought a candle, and she lit it and went over to a statue and stuck it in front of the statue and sat down and looked up at her. And that verse just came to mind. Jesus, seeing the crowd, was moved with compassion and taught them many things. And I thought, what does this woman need more than anything else? She's obviously poor. What she needs is to be taught many things. Taught many things. There's so much to teach. In the church here, there were prophets and teachers. And even when Jesus rose from the dead. I love that story, don't you, in, in uh, Luke 24, those guys on the Emmaus Road. I think we sometimes think of just two men on a lonely road. Maybe it was two guys in a very crowded road, maybe like a football crowd pouring out of Jerusalem. There were two guys walking down the road, and Jesus came and drew near to them and said, what's up? They said, oh, we thought, but mm, hope is gone. You know the story. And it says this, Jesus, starting from Moses went throughout the scriptures, teaching about himself. Jesus made a, a choice. He, he, he could have said, well, these people are so discouraged. It's time for, you know, Superman style, a resurrection appearance. I mean, what would you have done? You think, just, just say, hey, boys, I'm back. No, it's it. he made a choice. And what he did was, starting from Moses, he taught, 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 until their hearts were burning. And then he's off, bye. And they say, no, no, don't stay. So he made his choice. His choice was, 
What they mostly need is a Bible study. No, I'm off. Oh, please stay. So he stays. And in breaking the bread, it's the Lord. Yeah, they get their resurrection encounter, but he made a choice. His choice was what they most need now is to understand truth. And so, beloved, as we embrace the Spirit, we are not turning our back on the truth. We're saying, no, no, we need truth. We desperately need truth. And in the generation we live in, where people have got all their own kinds of ideas, it says in one of the Psalms, you thought I was altogether like you. <laughs> well, he's not. He's not. I wrote that text over the beginning of Ezekiel in my Bible. <laughs> it says, Ezekiel, I saw, and it was like wheels, eyes. No, it's not at all like us. We need him to tell us what he's like. We need to bow. We don't need to bring our preferences. We don't need to, well, my Jesus would never do that. I never think of God like that. Well, you need to change what you think about God then. But the culture doesn't believe that anymore. Well, the culture's wrong. And it's got the fruit of it. And so teaching is massive. It's huge. We've got to re-educate a whole generation. When people get saved, they get saved in a, just a, you can pick up a track. Isn't it amazing the way you hear people get saved? They say, I say, how did you become a Christian? Well, I was standing on the road and this bus went by and there was this text on it. And I thought, I believe it. You say, I hate that. And people say, well, I found this old tract on the floor and I picked it up. You say, you got saved by, yeah. <laughs> wow. People get saved by fragments of truth. But that doesn't mean they now know what the kingdom of God's about. They can have all kinds of attitudes and opinions. and They've got to say they get born again, but now they've got to be shaped. Now they've got to have their thinking torn down and built up. Replace, re-socialize attitudes. It's the truth that will set people free. And so we have to teach the truth, the unchanging, authoritative, faith-building, life-changing word of God. John Owen said this, the trouble with most Christians is not lack of effort, but lack of acquaintance with their privileges. A lot of people simply don't know. They don't know enough. I'm so grateful that when I worked through Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' teachings on Romans, having begun to see something of grace which was so different to what I'd picked up when I became a Christian. When I became a Christian, and it was so quickly muddled with laws and regulations and what God requires, and I still felt guilty that I'm born again. And I began to see a light. I began to see, hey, wait a minute. I'm accepted. I'm righteous. I'm free. And then I worked through, worked through Romans, worked at it. And as I worked, I got more and more and more convinced it's the truth that frees us. Philip didn't say to the Ethiopian, do you feel it? He said, do you understand what you're reading? Christianity doesn't rub off. It's not catch the euphoria. It's truth. We, so at this church, what kind of house will you build for me? It's going to be a house where the presence of the Spirit is manifest. Like dear Toppy, you know, not content, to be honest, for us to sing a couple of songs, but come on, let's draw near. Let's really draw near. I love that. I love that so much. Let's meet God. Jack Hayford was here last time, I think. I saw him on video, or at least on television once when I was in the USA. And uh, he's, he's got this television program. And it's, I don't know if it's live, but it's going out. And the choir's singing and all the rest of it. And he walks up, turns to the mic, says, hey, let's start worshipping, shall we? He stops the whole meeting. I thought, what is this guy doing? And I just thought, man, you are remarkable. You are remarkable. And he wanted to make sure that people were really coming to God. Yeah, we need the presence of God. We need the truth of God to keep us on course. Then the next word, I must rush, time's rushing by. It goes through. It says, there were in the church there prophets, yes, teachers, Yes, Barnabas. What's he doing there? <laughs> a, it's the next word. What are you doing here, Barnabas? Well, we read the passage, and if you read an Acts, you'll find what he's doing there. Barnabas had been sent to this new 
spontaneously birthed church from the apostles in Jerusalem. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard, we read it earlier, about the church, they sent Barnabas. Now, the apostles felt that they were to stay in Jerusalem. And uh, people have written about whether that was right or wrong. It's not our point. Our point is they felt they should stay in Jerusalem uh, to found this major and important church there. But they heard about another church coming to birth spontaneously. And so they sent someone on their behalf, what we might call an apostolic delegate. He was sent by the apostles. Why? Well, because he knew the score. He was with the apostles. He knew the apostolic doctrine. He knew how it worked. He was known. He knew them. He represented them. He was an apostolic delegate. Rather like later, Paul will say, I can't come, but I'm sending Timothy. He knows me. He knows my ways in Christ. He's worked with me like a son with a father. Receive him like you'd receive me. So here's a man sent on behalf of the apostles. That's what he's doing there. That's why he's there. That means that this church is touched by apostolic ministry. What kind of house will you build for me? This is a church that is touched by apostolic ministry. It is in touch with apostolic revelation, apostolic gifting. Now, it's a huge debate, and I've got time in one session, but you'll find that uh, it's touched upon in the book that uh, I hope you'll enjoy reading. Uh, apostolic ministry, it's a big, big question as to do apostles continue? And I realize it can be quite a contentious question, but let me just spend a few moments on it. Some would say, well, there were 12 apostles. Well, there are clearly several categories of apostles. In Hebrews chapter 3, it says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus, the apostle. So there is one category, Jesus, the supreme category. Uh, he's a sent one. The word apostle uh, from the Greek word apostolos means to send. It actually means to send with authority, to send as a delegate, as a representative. There's another Greek word, pempo. But apostolos means someone sent with authority. And Jesus about 40 times in John's Gospel, talks about having been sent. I do what the Father's told me. I, I, I want to fulfill what he sent me to do, and so on. He was a sent one. He's the apostle. Then you get the 12, whom he chose and called apostles. They're the ones, the apostles of the Lamb. They're in the foundation stones of the whole city of God. They are unique also, a unique band of 12 apostles upon whom the universal church is built. The church is built on the foundation of those apostles, prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone. We're familiar with those sort of teachings. But then there are other apostles. Paul. Now you can say Paul's in a category of his own. You can argue that. James. Barnabas. How many guys are going to have a category of their own? It says in this chapter, if we read on, the Spirit says, separate me, Barnabas and Saul. Next chapter, Acts 14, 14, it says, the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, doesn't distinguish between Paul and Barnabas, the apostles, oh, so they're apostles now. It starts the chapter, they were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers. By the next chapter, two of them are now apostles. So guys who used to be prophets and teachers are now apostles. Why? Because they got sent by God. And they're apostles. And uh, some have argued, even the great Campbell Morgan said, no, 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 the church got it wrong. They should never have replaced Judas. He was Paul. It's obviously Paul fits there. Paul doesn't use that language. Paul talks about the 12. He's quite clear he's not one of the 12. And also people have said, well, of course, apostles have to have seen the resurrected Christ. In Ephesians 4, it says this, he ascended on high, ascended on high, and gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. He ascended and gave. Not that he was resurrected and you had to see him. He ascended and gave from heaven. So Barnabas gets called. There's no evidence Barnabas ever saw Jesus after the resurrection. So this ongoing ministry, so 
to me it's very, very important that the apostles had a function. Now some have said, well, of course, the apostles' function is to write scripture. And now we have the epistles, so we don't need the apostles. But that is actually true. If you look at the 12, only a handful of them wrote scriptures. Matthew, Peter, John. The vast majority didn't write any scripture at all. And who wrote more scripture than anybody else in the New Testament? Luke, who's not an apostle. So that whole philosophy that apostles are Bible writers doesn't stand up. It's just not true. Now, obviously, apostles, the 12 and so on, and the authority of scripture, obviously, I hope you can keep hearing us say, all this, I'm just expounding scripture all the time. Scripture is our authority. But the work of an apostle, there is a work, there's a job apostles do. And it's to do with foundations. So Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and said, I laid a foundation, writing about the Corinthian church. He said, a wise master builder, it's a word we get our word architect from, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. That's something I did. I did it. You see, what we can have is this concept that the whole church, universal, is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, which is obviously true. But it can be kind of a bit philosophical. Jesus says, I came to Corinth. I can tell you what year I did it in and laid a foundation. I physically did it. I literally did it. I laid a foundation. I, I remember when I did it, I came to Corinth. I did it. What does that mean? See, the Bible speaks of the church in two ways. One, I will build my church, Jesus, both in Matthew. I will build my church, the universal church, through the ages, through the nations, only God knows who they are, the universal church. I will build my church. Then the other way Jesus used the word is this. You've got a problem with your brother? Go to him. If that doesn't sort it, take some witnesses. If that doesn't sort it, tell it to the church. What church? The church where you live. The local church. So that's the two biblical concepts of church. The universal church of everyone and where that is manifest locally where you live. I would say the church is laid upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the early church not only had these guys who received revelation, we don't have time to get into it, but Paul says in Ephesians 3, things formerly hidden from previous generations, now revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Paul is saying the apostles saw things that no one has ever seen before. Peter said Old Testament writers, were, they longed to look into what they were saying. They didn't understand what they were saying. Now it's revealed. And Paul is saying now, these things hidden, now revealed. All about how the Jews and the Gentiles are brought into one. Phenomenal revelations. The church was built on a completely new foundation. That had to be done locally, 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 as well as universally. So Paul can say to the Corinthian church, I laid a foundation. Like Billy Graham could say, I went to London in the 50s and 60s. I did my evangelistic thing. Or Paul could say, I went to Corinth in whatever year and did my apostolic thing. The work of an apostle. The work of an apostle, which is not simply writing scripture. And so we find sometimes a church came to birth. The apostles, they got ahead of the apostles. So the apostles said, hey, quickly, just make sure that's properly founded. Barnabas, get up there. Similar with uh, what happened when Philip went to Samaria, and an evangelist, he preaches, many are saved. The word gets back to Jerusalem, and the apostles hear the word of the Lord has been breaking through in Samaria. They've received the word of the Lord. They sent up Peter and John. Quickly, well, let's just make sure this is apostolically founded. Let's make sure. There's no Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Let's, the, the apostle has a job. Each of these ministries have a job. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. We're looking for... a a rainbow of ministries. When I got saved, my dear pastor was everything. He was an evangelist on Sunday nights. He was a pastor through the week. He's a teacher. He kind of, well, a prophet, and, uh, well, prophets are finished, aren't they? Apostles, obviously. 
my great hero, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you look at that list, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, he believed only pastor teachers continue. You read his studies in Ephesians, in uh, the Banner of Truth book, Ephesians 4, evangelists have finished, he says. So you get all sorts of people say, well, mm, there were pastors today, uh, and I guess teachers, yeah. Evangelists, I guh most people would say, mm, well, I think they are evangelists. Prophets, well, I'm not sure. Prophet, hmm. Once he's dead, you know, A.W. Tozer, that great prophet, he's dead, you can call him a prophet now. <laughs> while, while he's alive, he's pastor Tozer. When he died, that great prophet. Hmm. Since Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones died, I've seen him referred to in every way. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. I believe God has given a blueprint for the church. Why should we invent another one? Here's the biblical one. And so these apostles were involved in church planting, foundation laying. We've tried other things. We've tried democracy. We've tried ecclesiastical hierarchies. The New Testament shows us apostles were involved. Elders are appointed, etc. We haven't time to get into all that. Next word, working through it. It says here, there were in the church prophets, teachers, Barnabas. Then let's go on. Simeon, who's called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Manaean, who's brought up with the Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Who are these guys? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, if we just look at it. Barnabas, who's he? Well, the Bible tells us he's a Cypriot. Right? He's from Cyprus. So, okay, one of the leaders of this church is a Cypriot. Who's the next guy? Niger. Uh, Simeon, I beg your pardon, called Niger. He's a black African. Next one, Lucius of Cyrene. You look at John Stott's commentary, he says he's also a black African. Menaean, who's been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. What does that mean? It means Menaean was raised with one of the sons of the king. He went to school with Harry or William. That's what it means. He was raised with Herod the Tetrarch. He went to a very good school and mingled with some pretty high people. Was comfortable with Herod the Tetrarch. Comfortable being with Harry and William. And Saul, who's he? Well, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Sat at the feet of Gamaliel. This is the leadership team. What? What a weird group. What a strange group. What is this? I think it's very important that we see what is this. This is the church, Antioch, getting away from Jerusalem into a Gentile world. And God's saying, now, what kind of house will you build? And it's a house so different to what had happened before. Between the old covenant and the new covenant, there's continuity and discontinuity. Abraham's our father. There's continuity. David, yeah, we love him. We feel belong. We were baptized into Moses in the scene. Paul writes to pagans and says, our forefathers, our forefathers were baptized into Moses. We feel a deep sense of unification, but we feel, no, 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 we're also something fresh and new. Something new. God is taking Jew and Gentile. God is making, creating one new man. Something amazingly different and energized by the Holy Spirit. It can't happen without the Holy Spirit. These guys are incredibly different. Very, very different. Both their education, their social background, they are vastly different. What on earth gives them unity? Well, it says they're first called Christians there. It's hard to call them anything else. What, are, what can you call them? They're not that. He's this, and he's that, and he's from there, and he's from there. What have they got in common? Jesus. And it's the coming of the Spirit that made that. So, it's not just a definition of doctrine. It's not just an agreement of creeds. It's God coming. It's like when Peter went to Cornelius' home, very nervous to go. And the Holy Spirit says, go. And he goes, having seen the sheet come down from heaven, saying, I don't touch that unclean stuff. And then there's a knock on the door, and he goes to Cornelius' home, and while he's still speaking to this Roman 
soldier, this centurion, this hated Gentile who's pulverizing our nation, who's got the, he's got the heel on us, he's destroying Israel. This Roman centurion, Peter should hate him, at least be very nervous about going to his home. He's an unclean Gentile. I shouldn't enter his house. I certainly shouldn't eat with him. It's completely against my religion. He walks in. As he's speaking about Jesus, the spirit fell on him. And Cornelius starts speaking in tongues. And Peter says, they're speaking in tongues. This pagan Roman. This century is speaking in tongues like we did at the beginning. God has leapt across. They told me forest fires, when they get to certain combustion, the fire doesn't just go from tree to tree, it leaps. The fire has leapt across that chasm between Jew and Gentile and joined them. When it says strive to maintain the unity of the spirit. Beloved, that's not just, we, talk, we use about spirit, use that word so carelessly. There's a nice spirit in the meeting. No, we're talking about a unity from God by the Holy Spirit. Poor, here's Peter, a Jew, saying, I don't eat that stuff. And God said, go to this Gentile. I don't go near such people. Then the spirit leaping across. <gasps> He's got the same as us. They were united. Beloved, this church was united in a phenomenal new way. The, the, the spirit-filled church is a phenomenon. It's different to what it was before. It can be from different nations represented in the leadership team. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. With all those battles about, well, am I allowed to eat that? You can eat that. Imagine the Jews, but well, the new covenant must have been so releasing. You can eat what you like. You mean, you mean I can eat pork and go to heaven? <laughs> you, know, you can eat pork and go to heaven quicker. <laughs> it must have been so releasing. We're allowed to. It's different now. It's different. And all those restrictions that would have stopped the gospel ever reaching other nations because of Jewish culture is going to break out now because it's in the Messiah we find our unity. In Christ, in the Messiah of God, the Messiah of Israel. Israel's Messiah. We are in him. They are in him. We are one. There's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither male nor female. Jesus was incredible. Jesus let women listen to his teaching. That would have been totally foreign. For a rabbi to move around and be followed not only by men but by women. I mean, it's just absolutely outrageous. He broke through. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. Would you think that the early church, probably the Roman church, they reckon, the church in Rome, would probably have been 50% slaves. And so this, in Christ, there's neither slave nor free. I think it's hard for us in our generation to ponder that. When Paul writes to Philemon, and he says, your runaway slave, Onesimus, came to me, and he led him to Christ. He says, your brother. He says, receive him back now. He's writing to him. He says, your runaway slave, receive him back like you receive me. Receive him as a brother. A brother? He's my slave. I was going to sell him. <laughs> I mean, a, sl a slave is like furniture that breathes. It's like he doesn't have any rights. Or I My brother? No, no, in Christ. See, Jesus started that even in the 12. In the 12, of course, they're all sons of Abraham. They've got Abraham's blood in their veins. But Jesus chose 12 and he had a zealot. What would zealots do? Well, they kill Romans. You wouldn't walk alone as a Roman soldier through some parts of Jerusalem where the zealots were because they just come out and kill you and run. Zealots kill Romans. They hate Romans. They want to get them out of here. Then you've got what? Tax collectors. Well, what are tax collectors? Well, tax collectors are guys who go to the Romans and say, you want money from our people? You want taxes from our people? I'll get you taxes from our people. And they sold their souls to the Romans. They were hated. You, you, you're so disloyal. Where's your Jewish pride? Now you go to the Romans. Here's your, here's your tax. I got the tax. And Jesus gathers his cell group. And as you look around the 12, there is a tax collector, and there is a zealot. You think, I'll kill him. 
What have you got in common? What, have you, what, what are you doing here? Well, I love Jesus. Yeah, I love Jesus. He's the cornerstone where we find one another. So already Jesus is doing it in the twelve. But the church is a phenomenal manifestation to the world of the ability to break through racial prejudice, male-female hatred, suspicion, cheapening, slave and free. God, the church is a wonderful thing. Beloved, we need to love the church. I love the church. I remember there was a musical called Come Together. Some of you are probably not old enough to remember it. Uh, and uh, Pat Boone toured in this country and uh, all over the States. And they gathered huge choirs. And they sang. I mean, it was just, it came out of Jack Hayford's church. It's wonderful ministry. And they had this song. And then they, 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 this terrific big choir sang it out. You are the people of God. And he loves you. And he's chosen you for himself. So come together. I thought I'd die. I'm listening to this choir. I, I'm crying. I'm thinking, I love your church, Lord. I love your church. Zion. Zion, the place where he dwells. The church of the living God. What kind of house will you build? I remember our Bible college principal, he, he retained a pastor in a country church. He was principal of college and pastor of this little country church. And he said once, publicly, he said, I'm trying to find things that can get together. I've got farmers in my church, and I've got farm workers in my church. I'm trying to find things that can unite them. I thought, what? I don't think he was trying to scrabble or something. Or, you know, what can I? They're so different, he said. I thought, wow. What are we talking about? The church of the living God, this incredible company. We just got time to do a few more. We haven't got time to, just quickly. They were worshiping the Lord. We could spend a whole section on it, worshiping the Lord. Leaders gathering, worshiping. I know what it's like. As Toppy said, I've been in lots of churches over the years, and lots of church phases and sizes. I know what it's like for deacons or elders or leaders. Elders come together and say, wow, it's a long agenda. George, would you pray? Oh, God, bless our day. Right, let's get to this agenda. <laughs> Beloved, here's the leadership. says, let's worship. Let's worship. I found this. Got a long agenda. When you worship, it's somehow God does stuff. Let's worship. Let's, let's let everything be bathed in worship. They're ministering to the Lord. Bathed in worship. That's the church. That's the kind of church I want to belong to, one that's bathed in worship. One that, you say, well, it's a business meeting. We've got other things. Yeah, let's just worship. Think, oh, God, can we leave this? If we've got some business, okay, I suppose we must get to it. Okay, let's do the stuff. We're worshippers. We're besotted with God. Aren't we? Aren't we? Are we raising churches that are? Let's we need to pray and be good elders, model it as eldership teams. Share it with the men of the church. Share it with the church. They were worshipping. And into that context, God spoke. And I uh, just want to jump, just the last thing I would have said, last thing. Notice it says, as they're worshipping, the Lord spoke. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work. So what do I see here? What kind of house am I seeing? I'm seeing a house that is preoccupied with world mission. That kind of house. A house that doesn't feel it strange that two of its leaders would go off and start something else. Two of its guys would say, well, we're off. We're going. What do you mean? We're just with the church. No, no. We're here to... Jesus said to the disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations. It's a global commission. Fill the earth. What did they do? Go and make disciples. What did they do? They went and planted churches. That was their strategy. Make disciples. They didn't set up discipling programs. They set up churches where, with good eldership, people are shaped into a discipleship form. They're a group of disciples. They did it again and again and again, which means we're called to world mission. It means that sometimes leaders will go and start again. 
and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. Because mission is not a static thing. Local church is not a static thing. We're joined in mission. And, and it's not that someone in our ranks goes to a missionary society. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm even now just rereading the story of Hudson Taylor. I've got William Carey on the shelf ready for next. I absolutely applaud these amazing people who have been missionaries and done extraordinary things. I do. I just love Hudson Taylor. I'm so glad that uh, my son called his son Hudson. I just you know, I talk about this man all the time. I think he's wonderful. I love these missionaries. But the Bible doesn't say they went and set up mission stations. It says they planted churches. And that's, again, something that's got to be recovered. The planting of churches as being the biblical strategy for world mission. Interestingly enough, Roland Allen, ages ago, wrote in his book, Paul's Missionary Methods, sorry, Missionary Methods, Paul's or Ours, he said this, the first and most striking difference between Paul's action and ours is that he founded churches while we found missions. Well, that was an Anglican missionary who said that. And it was a radical book that came out over a century ago. Church planting is the God-given way to extend the kingdom around the world. Leaders going and doing it again. Church is getting behind that. Apostolic ministry is beginning to be birthed. Church is getting in partnership, as Paul says to the Philippians. Having started the Philippian church, moved on, wrote back to them, thanked them for their partnership, which probably meant some financial involvement. Thank you for when he says your fellowship, doesn't mean we had a nice cup of tea together after the meeting. It means fellow a partnership, koinonia. It's like Peter and John had a they were partners as fishermen. When one net broke, they rushed. It's not, a, it's not a religious word. It's koinonia, it's partnership. It says the Philippians, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. They got caught up with him to release him into more, 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 more. What kind of church? What kind of house? I must close. What kind of house is the question that comes out from Steve, Stephen's sermon. What kind of house will you build for me? The church at Antioch is one of the most wonderful models coming away from the Jerusalem base to start freshly again. There were prophets. The spirit was present. The word could be heard. Intimate, fresh words speaking. Not taking away from the authority of scripture. There were teachers. And everything that is purported to do, be done by the spirit comes under the authority of the word. Tested by the word. Challenged by the word authenticated by the word, or put down because the word doesn't agree. The word's central. Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, apostolic involvement. Great diversity. I love this church. It's phenomenally international. When I was here last time, they'd had their international Sunday, I think the week before. And I think they showed up on the screen, the shots of all the people with all their national dress. It was a riot of color and joy. God's church is a breathtaking phenomenon. And it's one of its beauties that we can incorporate internationally. And they were worshippers. We could see they fasted and prayed. We don't touch that today. But they were involved in world mission. Seeing the church is the agent for making Jesus famous among the nations. Let's pray.